This is episode 138 of the Swallow Your Pride podcast, and today's guest is Dr. Alex Brandemore. She is currently faculty for the University of South Florida within the Communication Sciences and Disorders Department. She completed her doctoral studies at the University of Florida, where she also received her her bachelor's. her master's and undergraduate education. After obtaining her PhD in speech-language pathology, Dr. Brandemore completed a postdoctoral fellowship in the Laboratory for Upper Airway Dysfunction within the Department of Biobehavioral Sciences at Teachers College, Columbia University with Drs. Michelle Trochet and Lisa Edmonds. During her postdoctoral work, she established and coordinated the Clinical Research Neurorehabilitation Center at Teachers College, served as co-investigator and or study coordinator for various large-scale NIH and MJ Fox-funded projects, and provided mentorship and teaching to master's levels SLP students. As an academician, Dr. Brandemore interfaces her passions for teaching, research, and clinic. Her primary research goals target the development of evaluative techniques and therapeutic paradigms to improve upper airway dysfunction, primarily dysphagia, disordered swallowing, and dystocia, disordered cough, in persons with neurodegenerative diseases such as Parkinson's disease. Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders, and I know firsthand how much confusing and conflicting information there is out there about how we assess and treat swallowing disorders. This podcast is all about bringing everyone together, getting on the same page, being open to new ideas, and using evidence-based treatment strategies for our patients with dysphagia. So let's get into it. Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. Do you feel unfulfilled in your career as a medical SLP and perhaps a bit confused on how to even move forward? Do you feel completely overwhelmed, overworked, overstressed, yet completely misunderstood and underappreciated in your facility? Do you feel like you're riding the therapy hamster wheel, unsure if you're even providing good therapy for your patients? When you started practicing medical speech pathology after grad school, did you get overwhelmed with how much medical SLP information was missing from your graduate education? If you've been working in the field for a while, do you feel frustrated that there's no one single centralized source to stay up to date on all the latest research and treatments that are coming out every year? Are you even sure you're providing the right and best, most up-to-date treatment techniques for your patients? Are you sick of paying up to $500 for courses that teach you about just one of the many, many conditions you need to stay up to date on? Imagine if there was one place that you could go to receive all the support and resources to help you eliminate these feelings. Imagine how much time and frustration you would save if you had immediate access to one centralized location for blind peer-reviewed resources. Imagine if you had access to several clinical experts and university professors to help guide you in your clinical decision-making with personalized response to your clinical cases. Imagine if you felt you had the detailed, personalized support you needed to succeed in your practice and your career from a wide range of experts and fellow clinicians who care deeply about your career development. Do you think then your patients would receive higher quality care and actually make progress towards their goals? Do you think you would get more rewarded and recognized for this progress among your patients and in your facilities? What if I told you I've created this exact solution? It's called the Medical SLP Collective. It's a monthly membership program and vibrant community of fellow medical SLP clinicians and researchers who are supporting each other to provide better care for their patients and therefore also advance their careers. 
My name is Kristen West. I'm a pediatric speech-language pathologist that specializes in children with medically complex histories, and I've worked with them in a variety of settings. What I love most about the Med SLP Collective is that it is such a passionate group of speech-language pathologists that really strive to provide the highest level of care to their patients through the implementation of evidence-based practice in our field. It's also such a supportive learning environment where everybody is willing to share their expertise and their knowledge to help grow individuals' professional practice, but also advance our profession. It really is such an interesting and unique learning community. I never have incur- um, I never have encountered anything like that in the field until I joined the Med SLP Collective, and I really can't say enough great things about it. I truly cannot say enough good things about being a part of the Med SLP Collective. It's really changed the way that I approach every single type of patient that I may not have been 100% confident in. So obviously, we want to work within our realm of competency and make sure our patients are getting the best care, but sometimes the job comes with things that we maybe don't feel highly confident on. So I was trained in voice and I was lucky enough to be trained by an incredible voice pathologist and feel very confident in my voice skills. But my entire career I have worked in voice and swallowing institutes and so with the voice people come the swallowing people as well and that's not something I always was very confident in and the Med SLP Collective has given me so many resources and so much actual information that you can use in the clinic. I've always loved going to conferences and meeting colleagues and networking and being inspired by the researchers, but I always felt lackluster as I came away from it, like I didn't have anything to go home and use. And anytime I'm feeling unsure of anything, I can reach out to a mentor in the group or just the other members. You can go on the website and get instructions on how to do exercises, the rationale behind it, evidence-based practice. It's really just a wealth of knowledge and it has grown my clinical practice immensely and made me feel so much more confident and inspired as a clinician. Hey everybody, Natalie Douglas here from Central Michigan University. And there are so many reasons that I love the Medical SLP Collective and I'm so grateful to be a part of it. Probably the biggest reason is that I love how clinicians are able to approach mentors in ways that specifically solve clinical problems that they're facing right in the moment and get very tailored advice that is supportive and really meeting the needs that they have right then, which I think is such a unique contribution to the profession. I also sincerely appreciate how much Teresa really cultivates a culture of respect and collaboration and the resources are just completely top-notch. She has a rigorous peer review process and the resources again are based on true SLP need and I just love how this is an awesome way to merge research and clinical practice in a supportive collaborative environment can't say enough about it. If you are interested in checking out the MedSLP Collective, um, please head over to MedSLPCollective.com and get on the waiting list. Enrollment opens May 17th. Uh, We will be open for about a week and then we will be closing enrollment down. We do have a student rate this time. I know, especially with 
COVID-19, we have so many grad students that have been displaced from their placements, externships, practicums, and we want to help. So we will have a student rate available. We also do have corporate rates now. So if you are looking to get um, access to the MedSLP Collective for all of the SLPs in your facility or within your corporation, uh, please reach out to us. We'd be happy to work out a rate for you. So again, enrollment opens May 17th. Head to MedSLPCollective.com to get on the waiting list and be the first to be notified. Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders. And I know firsthand how much confusing and conflicting information there is out there about how we assess and treat swallowing disorders. This podcast is all about bringing everyone together, getting on the same page, being open to new ideas, and using evidence-based treatment strategies for our patients with dysphagia. So let's get into it. Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. Hello, Alex. How are you? I'm well. How are you? Good, good. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm happy to be here. Awesome. <laughs> yes. Well, tell the people a little bit about yourself. Okay. So my name's Dr. Alex Brandemore. It's nice um, to be with you guys. I am a speech pathologist by trade. Um, I was trained at the University of Florida for my undergrad, master's, and PhD. And then when I graduated, I kind of followed my PhD mentor to Columbia University. She's uh, Dr. Michelle Troche, and I did a postdoc there with her and Dr. Lisa Edmonds, working to establish a center for neuro restoration of sorts, and then moved back to where my family is originally from and took a job at the University of South Florida as an assistant professor and have been working there for the last couple years. So that's that. I have two little girls and a little girl on the way. And in this COVID situation, I feel like we are just doing everything by Zoom. So it's nice yes. to see you. <laughs> yes, yes. I know. I'm like, I've been using Zoom for years and all you people are jumping on now and ruining. Jumping on the bandwagon. I, I know. Okay. I've got all these security settings that I didn't have to deal with before. I'm like, oh, I know. So. It's wild, but I'm so grateful for it because I honestly don't know what we would do, like how life yeah. would continue without it. I know. I know. I know. All right. Well, what do you want to talk about today, Alex? Well, so based on, you know, sort of what we, what we've discussed, I, um, you know, as a researcher have been really passionate about airway protection and it's more and more understood that now airway protection really involves a number of protective behaviors, everything from swallowing, which is where kind of I've spent the majority of my clinical profession, you know, managing swallowing, but it also involves cough. And that's where my um, PhD research was really focused and targeted as a means to eject material from the airway when something is aspirated. So I thought we could talk a little bit about airway protection, but I also know, you know, so I'm largely an academician at this point and in a teaching role um, at the University of South Florida. And so I'm, I'm really acutely aware of the common questions and concerns that my students have right now. And so one of the things I thought we could also discuss was sort of how do you as a newly graduated clinician, or maybe, you know, you've been in the field for a long time, but you're like, 
really interested in this medical side of speech pathology. You know, how do we take the very limited amount of training you actually get in a master's program? And what are some tangible tools and, and ways that you can attack the literature to kind of digest it, but then make sure you're managing your patients kind of from a comprehensive perspective. So that's that's kind of what I what I thought we would discuss and I'll defer to you. <laughs> Beautiful. I love it. I love it. Okay. Um, yeah. So. All right. Good. Well, what so I, what I, I think, it, you know, one of the, one of the things that is really important to understand when, when we talk about this continuum, continuum of airway protective behaviors, you know, we've really been talking about speech pathology in general, you know, swallowing as um, our main topic that we need to manage or the main the main aspect that we need to manage. And so if you swallow safely, you prevent things from going into the lower airways, into the trachea, the bronchi, the lungs. But interestingly enough, you know, we also have simultaneously been paying attention to cough kind of without even knowing it. You know, we have, you know, we assess voluntary cough as part of an oral mech exam. And then we're actually listening for something like a change in vocal quality, a throat clear or a reflex cough when we're giving bolus presentations at bedside. So, you know, it's this idea that we, you know, we know these behaviors are linked, but we're not necessarily treating them simultaneously. We're kind of just, we've been fixated on the swallowing side, which is super important, but I think you can get a whole lot more efficient outcomes in your patients by targeting, by targeting both. And we know that they not only share anatomical real estate in terms of the aerodigestive tract, but they also, they share all this neural space and shared neural substrates. And that's just one of the, there was a paper that um, Dr. Michelle Troche, who was my mentor, and then also Dr. Karen Hegland, uh, we, we wrote while I was in my PhD. And it's kind of guided my thinking of this in terms of these shared mechanisms. We know that actually production of a swallow and production of a cough interrupts the respiratory um, cycle. And so you actually have this these neurons that are multifunctional that can say, oh, you know, this is based on this stimuli, you should swallow, or based on this stimuli, you should ex execute a cough. And so it's just this really beautiful system that we kind of take for granted that I think is, is worth us spending some time on. Yeah. So as far as, you know, tangible treatment options for, for students, I think that one of the, you know, one of the things that's really helpful for for me is understanding that there, you know, there are two types of cough. Number one, there's the voluntary cough. I ask you to cough and you cough. Um, so we're kind of taking advantage of that top-down cortical initiation of a cough reflex, or not a cough reflex, but of the cough mechanism. And we know that people generally, you know, healthy young adults, healthy older adults produce very strong and robust motor outcomes in, you know, when asked to cough on command. But reflex cough is a little bit harder to disentangle because from initiation to completion, it involves this sensory experience. You have to be able to detect something. And most of our patients can't. You know, most of our patients, especially in, my, um, in our neurodegenerative patient populations, you know, they aren't, you know, we, we're worried about silent aspiration. Why are we not also worried about their inability to then eject that material? So um, we have this reflex cough that's dependent on sensory detection, and then out of that, you get this motor outcome that should be able to effectively clear the airway, and that's kind of the goal. 
So in, in laboratories and in research, it's actually, you know, not so hard to measure these things, but clinically it's much more challenging. It's much more challenging because you read the literature and you're like, okay, so yeah, like, I don't have a pneumatachograph. I don't even know how to say that word, <laughs> you know, or, or I don't have spirometry. What, you know, what am I going to do? And, um, but I think that there, there are some options and one of them actually was so one of my dissertation studies that we published a couple years ago was actually looking at this ability of, okay, so, you know, we know that we can, let's take the Mendelssohn, for example. We know with the Mendelssohn maneuver, you know, you are, you are asking someone to disrupt the natural reflexive, quote unquote, reflexive pharyngeal phase of swallowing. You know, you're asking them to, to alter that behavior. And so you have this ability to cortically from the cortex modify a reflexive behavior. You know, similarly in that vein, could we with cueing, with cueing and biofeedback, can we manipulate, can we manipulate a cough in the voluntary cough context and the reflex cough context? And so what we did is we had, you know, we had their airflow signal in front of them on a screen. We presented them with saline so that they would basically produce a voluntary cough when we asked them to. And then we presented them with something called capsaicin. And capsaicin is not available on the market, but it's derived from hot peppers. If you've ever been in a Mexican restaurant and someone's ex not, Mex not only Mexican, but Thai, any chili pepper that's been burned on a skillet, you you notice like the entire restaurant starts coughing. And that's because they, it, there, is, there is capsaicin that has then been aerosolized. So it's actually a pretty strong stimulus and it induces a, a cough reflex pretty readily. So, you know, in that study, we, they had their visual biofeedback in front of them. These were patients with Parkinson's disease and then some healthy older adults. And they, so they had their airflow signal. They had um, a target that we set about 25% above their baseline coughs that we had measured. And, um, and we were measuring peak expiratory flow rate. We were looking to see, can they, can they actually modulate? If we ask them to cough hard and cough like something went down the wrong pipe, can you actually improve your cough motor outcomes? And, you know, those are our proxies for cough effectiveness. It's not perfect because true cough effectiveness is knowing that something's actually ejected from the airway, but it's the best we have at this point. And it is a, you know, a good sort of standardized metric. So these patients with Parkinson's and these, you know, these healthy older adults, they were sitting in front of this computer. We, we said, okay, I want you to, you know, take a breath in and I want you to cough like something went down the wrong pipe. And kind of what was fascinating was that not only could healthy older adults do it, they, they did it actually like the way you probably would or I would, which is where they, they just took a bigger breath in. <gasps> you know, they took a bigger breath in and they coughed harder and they hit the green target area 25% above their baseline. But not only did they do it, but patients with Parkinson's disease did it as well. So it was really kind of an encouraging, eye-opening thing for me, not because I we know in speech pathology that people respond to biofeedback. We know that they do better with us cheering them on and coaching, you know, them and saying, go, 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 go. But I think what was, what was just encouraging about it was it was in the context of capsaicin. They could actually increase their reflex cough motor outcome with cueing. They could also increase their voluntary cough out outcomes. It just, I think, gave us one more therapeutic target in terms of management of airway protection, but it also, you know, kind of sheds light on this 
the importance of education on cough, but also on integrating cough into the management of these patients who have really, you know, complicated neurodegenerative processes. Yeah. 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 I love it. Well, thanks, Alex. Yeah. So I guess, yeah, I'd love to kind of segue into, you know, what you're talking about with students and how do you effectively teach them to do this out in the real world? Yeah. Yeah. So I think that um, a lot of it is just awareness. And, you know, I think students are hungry for for information and, and they want to be the best that they can be. And they come from these ivory towers where everything's kind of been taught you know, as it should be. And then they get into the real world and they don't have the equipment they need or they don't have the resources or, or they then lose the ability to even access research articles. So, you know, they, they, I think, start to feel, you know, very isolated. And that isolated feeling causes, causes fear, but it also causes them to kind of revert back to what they know. So what I would say is don't lose, first, don't lose touch with your professors. <laughs> So keep in touch with them because, you know, we're here, like, I, you know, I love my clinical practice. I, you know, even though I love research and I love teaching, I don't ever want to lose my clinical practice. I think that it keeps me not only grounded, but it keeps me mindful of why I do what I do. And it also makes me teach things, I think, in a more relevant way to my students in general. So I would say that don't lose touch with your professors um, because we're great resources to ask questions and, you know, bounce things off of. And I think we all got into this field to help people. So we never mind the questions kind of thing. Um, but the other thing is, is to take advantage of the inexpensive resources that are at your disposal. So if you are working in a hospital, for example, you know, targeting cough may be a challenge um, because you don't have, respiratory trainers or you don't you know what you may not have those things but you do have an incentive spirometer you know we've all seen those things at bedside after a cardiac procedure and you're supposed to suck that air in and keep the little ball between the arrows and you know i think as speech pathologists we are like well what are we what are we supposed to do with this thing but let's say that your patient is having problems coordinating the three phases of cough. And so just by way of reminder, the three phases of cough that are important, you need a good inspiratory phase where you take a big breath in. You need a compression phase. This is where the vocal folds actually adduct. You get laryngeal compression, which allows for this subglottal pressure to build up. And then you have this expiratory phase. And the expiratory phase is really what we're measuring in terms of motor outcomes, but it's this really amazing ballistic behavior. You generate extreme shearing forces through the lower airways that help bring up foreign and endogenous, you know, whatever secretions. Like if it, it sounds gross, but it's powerful and it's, and it's our best protective mechanism. Now, the one thing I should say is in this COVID-19 crisis, I feel like I hear my students more than, you know, they're now fearful of having a patient's cough or hearing a cough, you know, in general, we're all worried about, you know, oh, do I have the dry cough or, you know, and all those, all those things. But we're really talking about patients here that need their cough for survival. So we're going to have to find a balance, a balance where we are still encouraging our patients who, ha who have known airway protective deficits to to really manage this, you know, to, to really continue to cough and to realize that cough is their best friend. You know, it's, it's their, their, you know, safest protective mechanism they have. So 
I don't know. I think I like I got really angry when I read some someone put out a position statement maybe like last week or something that said like SLP should stop doing anything that might potentially elicit a cough. And it was like, I guess we're done working. Like, what? Yeah. You know, I don't, and I don't, I don't know how we, I don't know how we mitigate that. I mean, I think that the, the challenge is, you know, cough, the cough is the number one reason that anyone presents to a doctor, uh, you know, whether, and, and in, in the traditional literature for cough, you know, they've really been focused on these people who have chronic cough. And as speech pathologists, we have, you know, in voice disorder clinics, like we have really harnessed ways to behaviorally suppress cough. But we, you know, we also can't neglect the fact that that this, you know, for patients who are down-regulated, they are not protecting themselves, they're not sensing material, or they are sensing material and they've stopped paying attention to it because they have that tickle all the time. You know, there's something to be said for we need to, we really do need to encourage and upregulate that that urge to cough. You know, we need we need to assign value to it. We need to give them a you know a way not to be anxious about that production. But I, yeah, I don't I don't know how I don't know how we're going to balance that, especially post pandemic. <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah, yeah it's it's yeah. going to be it's going to be a challenge. But I think you know education is key here. You know, we're we're talking about patients who we've likely done fluoro on or we've scoped, and so we can effectively say yes, you have airway compromise. Let's let's assign. I, what I love is you know we've in my clinical practice, but also in research been um, looking at use of a, a simple Borg scale, an urge to cough scale, zero to 10. You know, it was, it was actually done to assess reflex cough sensitivity back uh, by Paul Davenport and uh, Chris Sapienza way back in the day. And then Michelle Troche and Karen Heglin have kind of perfected it. But they, you know, if you use that scale, during a swallow study and you actually, you know, you say, okay, so do you feel anything? You know, I'm just, I've just watched you, you know, your PA scale right there was an eight and you, you know, did you feel anything? They're like, oh yeah, you know, I feel maybe it's like a two or a three, which is in that mild, mild range. Say, okay, so when you feel that, when you feel that I need you to assign value to it, that's very dangerous. And whether that's, you know, consistent micro aspirations, or we're talking about, you know, large scale volumes, you know, that's something. So, so part of it, I think is going to be educating our patients about, about their current status, you know, making sure we're talking them through their evaluation results, but then also educating the healthcare profession too, to say like, let's let's not promote further fear you know let's tell the difference between a, someone who's sick and legitimately needs care and someone who needs to use cough as a defensive behavior yeah yeah I, I think that's when I just get so frustrated with these blanket statements because there's just so many things that it's like no but no no but this person <laughs> and that person and this patient and this condition and it's true yeah. <laughs> it's true so you know back to what are some of the tangible tools that we, that we can encourage you know so let's say again they're having discoordination you know having trouble even taking a big breath in they've got chest wall rigidity or they've you know there's they've got restrictive lung disease or you know some something's going on something like an incentive spirometer is available at every hospital at every bedside because it has no resistance but it is known to expand the pulmonary tissues and to and that movement you know helps move that bacteria and you know help with general recovery for patients who aren't ambulatory. So like that's a great first step. But then 
you know, on top of that too, there's resistive trainers, you know, strength trainers, inspiratory muscle strength training, expiratory muscle strength training. You know, what I always say to my students is, you know, treat what you see. You do that, do that in your dysphagia eval. Anyway, if you see someone with, you know, reduced pharyngeal peristalsis, well, you know what exercise you are going to recommend, regardless of the etiology, for, for the most part, of that disease, what you are going to treat what you see. And the same is true for cough. You know, I would say we, we take advantage of, you know, we know, especially with something like EMST, the research has really grown over the years to to pretty <laughs> concretely say, it's hard ever in research to say, you know, anything is concrete, but there's this, there's this overwhelming evidence to suggest that using EMST simultaneously improves swallowing function. You get better hyolaryngeal excursion. You get a reduction in PA skill score. And we're not just talking about in neurodegenerative populations. We're talking about in, 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 head and neck cancer at this point, you know, so we're, and, and stroke and, you know, we're, we're, so we, we know that if we are, if we're noticing deficits in, in swallowing or in cough, we really do just need to kind of treat the outcomes that we're seeing. And so that's, so those are some easy ones, uh, you know, and I think those are really inexpensive, actually. I remember the last time I looked at EMST, it was like 50 to $60 on Amazon and peak flow meters are another one there's been some great research that's come out to suggest that those are not just great, you know, sort of evaluative tools, but they can actually be potentially treatment tools and outcomes in our clinics to say, okay, here's where you were. We're going to work. I'm going to educate you on proper cough production. I'm going to upregulate you with cueing and with discussion of the urge to cough. And then we're going to use peak flow, peak expiratory flow rate as a um, as our outcome measure, and it's one of our goals, and that's a really that's a really tangible tool too. So, those are some simple ones, but yeah, nonetheless effective. And I, I can't under you know understate the importance too of just that biofeedback and an education component too. I think it's I think it's huge. Yeah. What What do you think? I, I know you probably don't have all the answers, Alex. Be great if you did, but yeah, I have, I have zero. <laughs> what, what do you think? You know, we do at this age now in COVID. Like, I I see some so many conflicting people. Like, we're still doing EMST. Like, no, EMST has been shut down in our facility. Or, you know, I just I, I'm curious because it's like they you know they've tried to take away our instrumental assessments and say we shouldn't do those, and now it's like are they trying to take away some of our treatments too? So. You know, I would say that's a very complicated uh, question, but a very good one. I think the the challenge is that we're still in quarantine in my state. And so a lot of our therapy at this point is being done teletherapy wise. And so in that capacity, I think it's worth it for us to just plug along the way we always have, because these, you know, these people are presumably in safe environments where they can you know, where they can continue those exercises and we can be giving them correction and modifications and biofeedback and helping them become better self-raters. I mean, so many of our patients just lack insight. That's part of our job is just to give them awareness of what's going on with them, you know, in terms of airway protection. So, you know, but, but quarantine won't last forever, <laughs> you know? And so, so the, I think the real question is what do we do with re-entry? 
And I think, you know, I think it is going to be important that we follow all the precautions. I mean, I know that at least in my facility that I work at, you know, we are it's fever checks at every door. You know, you're, you're doing all that you can, face masks, gloves, hand washing, you know, don't touch your face, all those, all those things. But at the same time, there's a human element that we, we need to be able to touch our patients and we actually need to be able to intervene with them in a meaningful way. So I, I honestly, I don't know the answer. My personal bias is, is if they, if they are, you know, haven't had symptoms, they have been quarantined, but they need intervention that we are, we are going to trust, you know, we're going to trust that we can, we can continue to work with them in limited capacities, but uh, maybe, maybe it means, you know, we have longer space between visits. Yeah. Yeah. You know, maybe it means that in terms of outpatient clinics, we're not seeing them once a week. You know, we're seeing them once every two weeks and we're and we're taking advantage of our insurance dollars over a longer period of time. I don't I don't actually have a problem with that. I kind of prefer it, to be honest, in terms of generalization. And if I'm giving them really intentional home programs, then I feel like then I'm I'm still I'm still giving them the best care that I can provide in that circumstance. I love what you said about the telehealth aspect. And I really hope someone from Medicare or CMS is listening because they did not include that dysphagia code with the approval of telepractice. And when I first saw that, I was like, I still think there's so much we could do for dysphagia therapy Oh, telehealth. I, I think a hundred percent there is now, you know, in terms of evaluation, no, <laughs> but, right. but, but we're, we're talking, you know, especially in neurodegenerative disease, you know, these patients become my friends, they become part of my life and we, and you follow them forever. I mean, you, you follow them for the rest of their life or your life essentially. And so, you know, we aren't talking about, you know, we're not talking about evaluations here, but we're talking about management. And, and again, we're not, in some of these populations, the goal isn't, okay, so, you know, I have this slope, I know this disease is going to, um, going to decline, let's just say at a 45 degree angle. Well, maybe the goal isn't just to, you know, to change the direction altogether and go another 45 degrees, but maybe it's just to flatten it out a little bit, you know, and maintain function. And so that I think is where teletherapy could be so valuable is if we, you know, if we have these relationships, we have the the baseline information we need, we're not recommending things in a vacuum. Why not? You know, why not have, we we know we can work from home, why, you know, or work from wherever we are. Why not take advantage of, of, you know, more face-to-face contact? I'm, I'm just, not opposed. <laughs> yeah, good. Yeah, yeah. I, I love it. I'm glad. Sometimes I'm like, am I the only one that feels this way? So I'm glad. I'm glad to, <laughs> glad to hear that. I don't think you are. I think we're all just desperate. Yeah. For whatever is yeah. going to help our patients' quality of life, and you can tell a lot. You can tell a lot. You know about how someone is performing over telehealth. I was part of a. I work a lot with ALS at the University of South Florida. We have a really good multidisciplinary clinic there, and. You know, there's been a lot of discussion about what should this dysphagia screen include. And, you know, actually Lauren Tabor, who's in South Florida, has given some really good recommendations there too. You know, it's, it, but it's robust. I mean, it's a, it's a complex, really full screen that is being done over telehealth. And it's just as effective, you know, not maybe just, but it's very effective at identifying patients who are at risk and need intervention. So I think, I think it's worth a look. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. I, I think it's it. worth a look. 
This episode is sponsored by Craig Goldslager of Utterly Financial. Craig is not your typical financial advisor. He works exclusively with us, SLPs and private practitioners across the country to create simple, actionable financial plans. As the spouse of a busy SLP, he knows we didn't learn about finances when we earned our seats. Nobody told you what to do about your student loan debt, how to protect your income, ways to save and invest, or even how to start or sell your private practice. Working with Craig and his team will not only improve your finances, but it will allow you to free up time and energy to focus on your family, your work, and what you love most. I know many of you are stressed about your finances. Craig is opening up his calendar exclusively to listeners of the SYP podcast and offering a free 30-minute consultation. You should take advantage of this. Visit utterlyfinancial.com forward slash SYP to set up a time with him. That's utterlyfinancial, U-T-T-E-R-L-Y-F-I-N-A-N-C-I-A-L.com forward slash SYP. Um, where, do we, where should we go from here, Alex? So I think it's totally up to you, but I also was thinking, I wrote down some questions that I commonly get from my students. And especially when it comes to this thinking about neurodegenerative processes, I think what happens to a lot of my students is they hear, well, it's neurodegenerative. The brain is losing neurons, or we're talking about the central nervous system. It doesn't regenerate. Anything that involves the central nervous system, like we really can't help with. And I think that this goes along toward, sort of to what we've been discussing thus far as well, and that, that that's just not, not true. You know, I, the, there is really good research, but anecdotally in clinic, I can also say these patients, even with very profound atypical Parkinsonisms, and in some cases, you know, ALS doesn't necessarily improve, but maintenance of function is still a win in ALS to some extent because of just how insidious that disease is. So, you know, I think one of the things that I would say is just because your patients are exhibiting maybe profound swallowing and cough deficits, you know, that you ask them to cough and they, you know, huff. And I mean, it's, it sounds wet and you're just like, you're super concerned. I don't think that's necessarily a reason for us to just say, well, you need a modified diet or you need a feeding tube or, or whatever else. I think it, it, maybe those things are necessary. But I think also because we're expecting this long-term life expectancy with this disease, it's really worth it for us to say, no, you are a candidate for rehab, but let's, let's figure out what, what you are a candidate for. Maybe it's a combination of X, Y, and Z exercises paired with some temporary diet modifications or postural maneuvers that then we, you know, so, so maybe it is a way for you to get off those compensations at some point, you know, for, for quality of life purposes. Yeah. I love that. I, you know, I mean, one of my like most favorite lines is like from the Logaman book that when did she write that like 25 years ago or something, but it talks about just how diet modifications are like, should be the last resort. Yeah. And it's like, how did we get so off track here? Like, how did we just go to that first and forget the whole rehab that we can actually do? I know. I don't know. And I think honestly, you know, we, again, we all got into this field because we wanted to be able to help people, but we also wanted to change physiology. I think, you know, I went into my master saying, I'm going to work with children with autism and yep, 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 yep. you know, and I, 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 that's, that's all I knew really. And then I had my dysphagia class, Mike, Michael Crary, who I think still at UCF, but he, you know, he was my dysphagia professor and I was so riveted by it. And then I was in clinic with Jay Rosenbeck, who was like, 
a motor speech guru and and then with Michelle Trochet and I, I mean like truly like it, it was like I took a, a left-hand turn and I never looked back I, I said no no, no more peds and I love children don't get me wrong but they they really did open my eyes to a, a way to intervene in with in terms of quality of life in a in a really impactful way. I mean, I was, I was shocked by how much we could really like improve adults quality of life. And they listened to you, you know, they, they did what you said. And, and you know, anyway, I, so I just, I feel like it is, it is a shame. It is a shame that, yeah, we wanted, we want to rehabilitate, we want to fix. And yet we sometimes just fall back on what's safest. And I understand thickened liquids are safer. And in some acute settings, that is a thousand percent what you should be doing. You know, these really compromised patients who are healing and not safe and all those things. But for these outpatients who are ambulatory and they're, you know, we know they have dysphagia, we know they're aspirating, but they, I have patients in and Parkinson's fight clubs and dance classes and singing groups, and they're so active and they're not developing pneumonia, you know, because we know pneumonia is, or aspiration pneumonia at least, is more multifactorial than just aspiration. So I don't know. My, my personal bias is that we rehab should always be on the table, unless we're talking about something that's really going to, you know, something like myasthenia gravis or something like ALS, where we know we're going to likely do more harm than good in terms of muscle degeneration. You know, I think it's always just worth saying, let, let, let me see what, what can I do to the brain? You know, what can I do to change these neural pathways? And I think one of those, you know, seminal papers by Kleiman Jones back, you know, almost over a decade ago on neuroplasticity, it still needs to be the, the guiding force and principle of like, okay, so we need to, we have enough intensity. Do we have enough repetition? It, does it matter to the patients? Well, with dysphagia, it always matters to the patient. Everything you love to do in life it revolves around food, especially in this COVID-19 crisis. All we do is cook and eat. And so it's just in terms of preventing social isolation and, you know, giving them motivation that it's always salient. It's always salient to them. So I just, I, I think that if we can, if we can, we, we shouldn't use diet modifications as as like the first line of defense. It should be, it should be a combination of things. Yeah. Awesome. I love it. <laughs> Other thoughts? <laughs> I've got so many. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, you know, where I think pre COVID the research was probably headed in one direction and I'm almost wondering if, are we making a left-hand turn now because of, of COVID or do you think you know, I think, I think honestly, if that happened, it would be a shame. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Good. Good. Because I think it's, it's too important. I mean, the, the work that's coming out, that's um, especially looking at, you know, again, thinking about managing airway protection on a continuum, you know, I think the research, so sort of as I was, I was exiting my postdoc, you know, was looking at, okay, well, how do we, how do we rehabilitate reflex cough? You know, how do we actually, can we train someone to become more sensitive to a stimulus? And I think those, those answers are still, they're still out there. You know, we're, you know, the, 
it's not quite known yet. I think it will be soon, but I just, I think it's too important. I think it's too important for quality of life, for maintenance of life and quality of life in these patients for us to neglect it altogether. And I do hope we can find some sort of middle ground where, you know, we're more aware, we're more more cautious, whether it's face shields or whatever we've got to do. I just, I don't think we can, I don't think the research will about face and I, and I hope it doesn't. I, I just think throwing the baby out with the bathwater is not the good situation because I think they're... <laughs> yeah, and I also think we've we've made too much good yeah. ground. You know, we've made too much good ground to say, you know, hey, we, we know that if you... Th- th- there's this beautiful relationship. You do a cough at bedside and the cough is... It sounds... Well, we know perceptually we're not great, but in terms like their peak flow is low, likely their swallowing is poor. So it's a great way to screen patients. You know, we've made ground in terms of using it therapeutically to train voluntary cough and upregulate. And I think if we can really get a handle on how do we send this home with patients, how do we improve their ability to detect stimuli, then, you know, we've really, we were really, you know, done something. And I think that that's coming. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. We cover everything on here, Alex. What else was there? I have no idea. (laughs) I don't even have it up, but I have, um, oh my gosh, you know, how do I know if a PhD is right for me? Um, I get that from my students a lot. How do I transition from a medical or to a medical SLP or how do I get better training in my master's to do that? So you just pick which one or any, anything. Yeah. I I like a few of those. Go. (laughs) Yeah. So I, yeah, I, I, I really love what, what did you call yourself? An academician? Academician. Yes. That's a new word. (laughs) (laughs) I like that. I have a, I have a small percentage for research and I've been loving doing research. I collaborate with Dr. Stephanie Watts and Joy Gaziano. um, And they are, you know, they're brilliant researchers, but also clinicians. And, and so we've been looking at cough and swallowing and and some laryngeal measures in Parkinsonism. So the atypical Parkinson's. And so we're, we're, that's more in sort of like our pilot stage of, cause we're, we're relatively new out of our, you know, our doctoral training. And so, but what the need at USF was, was um, for someone to teach sort of our adult our adult courses. So I teach dysphagia there and I teach, I teach voice disorders, but I also got the chance to develop this class on, you know, how do SLPs manage complex movement disorders? And uh, it's because I had, you know, great training when I was at UF in a multidisciplinary clinic that was a Parkinson's center of excellence, but also saw everything from, it was a dystonia center of excellence. We saw tons of patients through this facility with just any number of complexities. And, um, and so it gave me an arsenal of patient samples to play for students. And so one of the last courses they take before they graduate is this class. And it's a way for them to be able to integrate their coursework. So we play them these patients who don't just have dysphagia, they have cognitive linguistic disorders, they have voice disorders, they have motor speech disorders, how do you train your ear? How do you how do you think about these patients and, and then not only diagnose them appropriately, but also like, how are you going to do that in a 30 minute treatment session? How are you going to treat it all? You know, how are you going to, how are you going to manage all those factors? So 
Um, it's really been a fun class for me because I want to take it, Alex. You, I will, I will let you audit it. You come anytime. <laughs> well, I think what, what I love about what you said, and, and I think it's a real, pro, it's it's a blessing and a curse. I think so many of us, I know what I did. I went down the dysphagia rabbit hole. And, and I don't want to say I forgot about everything else, but I forgot about everything else. And, 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 you know, then I talked to my friends who specialize in aphasia and they're like, oh, I don't remember anything about dysphagia. Or you talk to friends that love motor speech and they're like, I wouldn't know the next thing to do with a voice person. And I'm like, crap, we really did ourselves a disservice here by specializing so much that we forgot our general, you know, knowledge base. You know, and isn't that kind of fascinating? I, you know, it, so first of all, you know, speech pathologists are generalists. Like we are generalists in that we are required to know a lot about a lot. Like we, we there are so the expectations for our scope of practice are very high. But what's heartbreaking to me, especially when I was working with ALS, is that I would call these clinicians you know, because my patients were traveling from far away, I, you know, I would, I would call them and I would say, Hey, I, you know, there's a patient that's local to you that I want to refer you for an AAC evaluation or for a swallow study or X, Y, or Z. And they would say, Oh no, 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 I don't, I don't touch ALS. You know, like I, I don't, it's not my scope of practice. And that kills me. It does because these patients need you, you know, and we are all technically competent and trained in it. So that's one of the reasons why I developed this course was because I felt like it was just a missed opportunity for us to, to say, look, we teach you these things in a vacuum. Like you learn voice disorders separate from your aphasia, separate from your dysphagia, separate from your dysarthrias. And, and the reality is, is that most of the patients with neurological impairment are going to have all of them. So how do you triage? And, you know, of course, because dysphagia and how we manage it can result in life and death that often wins. But think about the, like the beauty that can be motor speech diagnosis in terms of our ability to help a neurologist disentangle what someone has. I I tell my students all the time, you know, speech is a window into what's going on into the brain. And so if you can train your ear to hear these different, you know, motor speech profiles, you actually, I can't tell you how often I get consulted to say, hey, do you, you you know, is this a a straight up Parkinson's disease or do you think this is a Parkinsonism? Is there something else going on in their speech? And I'll say 100%, you know, that that's an ataxic component that shouldn't be there. This patient is likely headed for an ism, you know, and So I just, I think that one of the perks of a class like this is it does give you just at least a semester to practice critical thinking and, and, and to help you not fear. I mean, ultimately, I think that's what clinicians do is like, we put ourselves in the box because we say, well, this is what I know. And this is, I I know I can do right by this set of patients. But if you have the practice and you have these, you know, because you may not be, you know, blessed with a great clinical externship or something where you get the chance to do that. And so anyway, if you have some experience doing it and saying, you know what, I can treat anything that walks in this clinic. I can treat anything because I know how to think it through. I have these fundamental tools um, and I, you know, I have to give it up to the people who trained me to, to say like, I am only good at it because they trained me that way. You know, it didn't come from my coursework. My coursework is great, but it never integrated anything like that for me. So, you know, I don't know. I would say it, not that Ash is listening, but if Ash was listening, putting either more adult 
course content in our graduate curriculums or providing ways to integrate that coursework. You know, at USF, it's my course, but they also offer a lot of grand rounds for our students. And, you know, I, I, I don't know what the answer is, but I just feel like that is something that could be that could be a little bit helpful. <laughs> so did you end up having to teach that class online this semester? I did. I did. That that was a little wild. But thank God for technology um, and for, you know, because what I can do is, so all my patient samples are obviously de-identified because of HIPAA and all those things. But, you know, I can put those samples online for them. We can watch them together as a group and do our perceptual motor speech evals together and we can pull up their MBS and we can read it. And um, they still have access to their MBS IMP training protocols and, you know, all those things that, that give them practical experience, even though it's, it's not the same as in-class instruction. I do feel like we've been able to make the best of it. So it's, I mean, it's not easy. <laughs> it's not easy, but I think it's super important. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. I love that. Alex. Yeah. But you can audit anytime. Come awesome. on. <laughs> I'll be, the grad school kids will just embarrass the crap out of okay. me. So I, you know, I think, I think initially they're, they're like terrified of the class because it's really heavy in the beginning of the class. But then by the end they're they are really encouraged and shocked by their like their ability to think something through yeah, and, yeah. you know, and what a gift to actually require your students to critically think about a situation. And, and I don't say that it probably sounded sarcastic. I don't mean that sarcastically. I mean, it's a lot of our coursework is just learn, 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 study, take a test, you know, learn, 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 study, take a test. And it's, well, and it's hopefully that's where our field is also kind of adapting and changing too. I think we're kind of on the forefront of that, you know, where we're saying, look, like, you know, clinical applicability is paramount, you know, no longer is it just theory. I think theory is important, but I don't think that it, it, it doesn't check all the boxes. It doesn't, it doesn't teach you what you need to really know to be a good, you know, meaningful clinician that feels confident and you don't only gain confidence with experience, but you, you have to get it somewhere. You know, you have to be exposed to it and and feel safe in an environment to explore your own ability to think somewhere. And the clinic isn't necessarily the first place you want to do that. You know, I think in the classroom, it's, you know, it's a little bit more controlled and, and then you get to go spread your wings. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> oh, good. Well, thanks, Alex. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, one thing that I, I just love hearing from you is, is you know, you have your a researcher, but you do have such a clinical heart, I feel like. And, and I, I love that. It's one of my most favorite things because I always say someday I'm going to get my PhD. Someday I'm going to get my PhD. But I'm so passionate about the clinic, the clinical aspect of it. So I I love that you're able to really marry the two and, and still stay so grounded in the clinical practice too. Yeah, that's actually, that's a really good point. And I think, you know, not all PhDs are that way, but I was fortunate again, when, you know, Michelle Troche and I started working together, I was, I, I so respected how she approached her career, but also her life. Like she was just such an empathetic human and she came at clinic she could develop this amazing rapport with patients. And I remember just being kind of in awe and thinking, you know, this is absolutely the you know, the kind of researcher that I would want to be because these patients loved her and, and, you know, she was so engaging with them and, you know, she still is, she's thoroughly entertaining, but you know, it's just, 
I, I felt like her research philosophy and her clinical philosophy philosophy was something that married really well for me. And, and that's honestly, that would be my biggest recommendation. If you do go back for a PhD, find someone who not only where your research interests align, but like your life philosophies align and your, your clinical philosophies and where maybe they have the ability to offer that to you. You know, they have the ability to keep you in clinic, not a lot, but in, because that's overwhelming. Your PhD is totally overwhelming. But enough so that it keeps you mindful of why you're doing what you're doing and why you care. It's like, that's so important. So, you know, your mentor, your mentor relationship is, is paramount. And if you do, you know, go for a PhD, that is, that's honestly what I would say is like, it doesn't matter what university you go to. It it really only matters what your mentor is like and what they are interested in and, you know, how far along are they in their career? Can you deviate from what they do a little bit? Not so much, you know, all those things, all those things really matter, but we need more PhDs. And if you're passionate about research, I mean, the PhD is a research degree. There's no question about that. But if you're passionate about it and you have lots of questions, which I know we all do, you know, I would say, I would say, go for it. You'll never, you won't regret it. It's, it's, you'll cry through it. I think I cried a lot, but you will never regret it. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Awesome. Do you have any, any more words of wisdom? If anybody Mm. is wanting to get a PhD, I I love that you said, cause someone had asked me that yesterday, like it was, I can't remember how they worded the question, but something like, why don't we have as much research as other fields? And I was like, I don't think it's that we don't I forget how it was worded because it was like, it's not that we're shunned from other organizations. I just don't think we have the volume of researchers that a lot of other professions have. I think we just have such a shortage that we can only put out so much. We're a young field, I think in general too, you know, we're, so, you know, you talk about speech pathology being relatively young, but dysphagia is even younger. And, you know, some of the people that I work with didn't have a dysphagia course in their master's program. So, you know, it's only we, we are going to get there, but, and there's really good science in dysphagia. Oh my gosh. If you ever, I'm sure you've gone to DRS, but you know, dysphagia research society has just some of the most brilliant minds in the country. And I, you know, it's, it's feisty, like it's a feisty conference, but I am, I'm always just, I'm very impressed with the caliber of the science. And I, you know, I think that that's just, where we ha- we have to trust we have to trust the process but you know it's a there there is a lack of phds we know this it takes more time you're not paid like you're not paid very much you know you, you enough to survive but for a lot of people who are 5 10 years out and used to making normal money it's very hard for them to take that cut and come back so you know for me i benefited from going straight out of my masters you know and i never made money. <laughs> so I was, it was, le- it was less painful, but I think, I don't know. It's, it's, it's a commitment. It's a commitment, but it's good science. Good science is really fun. You know, I think that it, it, it really is. And it's fun to be, but you have to collaborate. You know, you can't be an Island as a researcher. I, I just, I think I, I've learned that more and more over the years. And, you know, so I would say, I would say if you're passionate about it, just start asking questions, be willing to move for your mentor, essentially, whoever that may be, but they can always use the help and you're just as valuable to them as they are to you. And yeah, but I I think it'll come. I mean, I I don't think it's that we're, we're under-researched as a field. I just think we are young and as a field and 
you know, and, and, and sometimes not as flashy, you know, like the government doesn't necessarily want to fund research on behavioral exercises, you know, they, they didn't want to fund those things. So you just, we're, we're, we're kind of catching up. I, Karen Hegland, it does a lot of really cool things with, you know, EEG and, um, you know, there, so there, there's, just, there, there, it's coming, you know, <laughs> but it's just, but it's just different, you know, it's, it's a, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a time game a little bit. Yeah. yeah. Thank you, Alex. Easy, easy. Did we cover everything? I think you did. I don't know. I, you tell me. I feel like I ramble. <laughs> no, this was wonderful. I, we covered a variety of topics, which I love. I think there was so much good stuff in here. Oh, so. well, good. I mean, you are easy to talk to. So I just oh, well, they- talk and talk and <laughs> talk and yeah. a little bit. You know, it's funny you say that about Karen Hegland. She was like, I don't know if anybody's going to like what I have to say. I don't know what, what to even say. And she went on for so long that we made it into two episodes and it's been one of the most downloaded ones. And people were so she fascinated. Is, I was is. like, yes, it was brilliant. She, she is brilliant. I, I, I remember yeah. when I was learning from her sometimes, like, I would just like, I felt like I was a deer in the headlights. I was like, I can't process information as quickly as you were selling it, you know, and like, I know that this is gold. I just don't, I'm not like, it's not resonating. I think that's what's so frustrating too about a PhD is that you, you know, you're used to getting like A's you're used to succeeding and a PhD is designed to kind of break your constructs. Like it's designed to make you not only dissect science and like be critical of science, but critical of yourself and, and realize what you don't know. I mean, I think the more, you know, the more, you know, you don't know. <laughs> yeah. 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 You know, I, I, again, I mean, I, I would sit and listen to her and Michelle talk and Jay Rosenbeck talk sometimes. And I would go, I just like, I, I can't process this as quickly as you are, are, are spilling it to me. And they are there. They're, they're they're brilliant. So I don't doubt that she's one of your most downloaded episodes. It's, yeah. <laughs> it's thoroughly entertaining to listen to yeah. her. Yeah. <laughs> so awesome, Alex. Well, thank you so much for everything. This was a great You're chat. You're so welcome. I hope it was helpful. I hope that it wasn't just my, my ramblings, but you know, I, I do, you know, we all love this field. I feel like we're all, anybody who's in it loves it, but I just, I feel I feel for the students right now, especially those who were taken out of clinic and, you know, and are now like, okay, well now what, how do I get experience with dysphagia? Not even allowed in the hospital. And so, you know, what I, what I don't want to happen is for them to just get discouraged or fall back into something that's easier and then say, well, you know, I'm just, I'm not going to do it. And I don't know. I don't know if there's a way to I know I was talking to a student last last week and she's so smart, so, so, so smart and just one of those that would probably ace your course there that just understands the critical thinking and everything. And she was like, well, I'm just not, I don't think I'm going to be able to get a medical CF. I'm going to just go work in the schools. And I was like, no, that's no. That's the thing. That's the thing that I think I'm truly, I'm afraid of. Yeah. Like I, and, and not that, not that working in the schools is bad. No, no, but- it, but when you have a heart for something, you need to be able to pursue it as far as I'm concerned. And that's, I guess, where I, I feel, I feel like number one, there's, they, you know, they don't feel confident in themselves, but then in this whole crisis, now they feel like, well, I, you know, like I might as well just throw in the towel. I don't have, yeah. I don't have the options. Yeah. So I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna keep my fingers crossed that 
they, they fight on, you know, they fight on. And, and I do think life will get back to normal. It won't be for a while. You know, I think this is going to be something we deal with for a, a good chunk of time. But, you know, I know at least from my perspective, like I'm really committed to making it so that those classes that were in person are not traditional online learning. You know, they have to have interaction with us. They have, you know, they have to be doing swallow studies with us. They have, like there has to be that clinical bend more so now than ever because they are removed and we just can't, can't afford to, we, we, we just can't afford to not do them justice in this time. And so I, you know, as hard as it is for for us to like find new and creative ways to do online teaching, like it's totally worth it. And I, I think it's going to, it's going to be a, it's going to be a learning curve. You know, (laughs) I'm working overtime over here. (laughs) Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. Well, thank you so much, Alex. This has been great. You're so welcome, but thank you for having me. And, um, you know, it was lovely to chat with you. I wish you and your little one all the best in this whole. Oh, thank you. So if you would love to hear more of these episodes and get some easily digestible bites of swallowing knowledge, then please leave a review on iTunes or pledge a small amount on patreon.com forward slash swallow your pride because that is what keeps these episodes coming. Also, don't forget to subscribe, share with your closest colleagues, and show notes will always be available to download over on swallowyourpridepodcast.com where you can also be notified of the latest podcast episodes. Also, credit to Stephanie Jacobson for her incredible editing skills and thank Thank you so much to all of you for listening.